people often look at science and think, oh, it's uh, you know, it's all hard and fast and objective and about data and and I mean, and all those things are true, but it's also you know, there's a really intricate human story there, and there's you know, relationships and all kinds of things in the background that um that make it tick. G'day, and welcome to the Good Life, Andrew Lee in conversation, a podcast about living a happier, healthier, and more ethical life. Our society puts a lot of emphasis on smarts, but not enough on wisdom. So this podcast seeks out wise people who can share their insights on passion, grit, love and empathy. We'll discuss everything from sport to parenting and hear the stories of some of the world's wisest souls. If you enjoy the podcast, let your friends know so they can share the insights. Now. Let's dive in to today's conversation. Over the last two decades, Graham Walker has taken science to more than a million people in Australia and around the world, uh, using live science shows to communicate the curiosity, the wonder, the humour and the excitement of science. This year, he's giving my annual Fenner lecture, uh, a lecture uh, in which I invite somebody to uh, come and talk about science, particularly to young people in the north side of Canberra. Uh, We're doing it a little differently. We've got uh, Graham performing on Gungalan Oval, uh, where we can have a couple of hundred people in in a COVID-safe environment. But I wanted to sit down with Graham and talk through why science communication matters, Uh, the importance that science can play in a good life, and why all of us can take on a more childlike wonder when it comes to science. Graham, thanks so much for joining me on the Good Life podcast today. It's good to be here. Thank you. So you're now a lecturer at the Australian National Centre for the Public Awareness of Science, but you were uh, were once a kid and once uh, were turned on to science. Uh, What was it that got you excited in the first place? Um the that kind of those childhood influences I, I think they're so important and they're, they're so important when we're we're thinking about um you know early childhood learning and all that and for me they were really pivotal um I had parents that let me try all sorts of things out um once my knowledge w- was a bit more I had a father who oh, we are on the record aren't we um <laughs> I had a father that would, you know, let me work out a chemical equation and then tell me if it was okay to, you know, perform with everyday items in the shed. Um, some of them were, some of them weren't. Um, yes, yeah, so, so I guess, yeah, I had... So your dad was a scientist then? Yeah, my dad was a geologist and, yeah, he was kind of really hands-on. He moved into policy and things, but it'd be always, you know, um, he was always up for a chat, always up to explore and always um, wherever we could. Uh, we made it real. It wasn't just bookwork, and and you know, science science isn't just bookwork. So, give me an example of figuring out a scientific equation and then going and trying it out. This is an intriguing notion. I certainly never did this with my dad when I was growing up. Um, yeah, look, so so there were there were various things made. Um, you know. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how much I can say in the current climate, but we, we did we did test out uh, we we test things out. Um, we'd um, spread pumpkins around the yard in in creative ways. Uh, yeah, so and and it really got me thinking. You mean you blew up pumpkins? You, you could paraphrase. Right, that. right. You could paraphrase like that, but but all done safely. Um, and and certainly that um, understanding the science to keep yourself safe and and knowing. 
understanding the science enough to know when you shouldn't try it at home or where you shouldn't try it anywhere. They're, they're really valuable learnings I took from that time as well. Um, but yeah, it was a place where I was encouraged to explore and, and I was encouraged to understand how things work rather than just, you know, just mucking around with them. Uh, were you uh, a good kid in school? Were you interested? Was, was it always science all the way? Um, I liked science and maths. Um, yeah, I, I wasn't, uh, you know, I guess I was a relatively high achieving student, but certainly not a, a model student. Um, I think, uh, you know, th throughout my learning, I'd kind of latch onto things that, that I was really passionate about. And lo and behold, you know, you engage with those things more. Um, you know, other things, you know, maybe I wasn't so academically gifted. And I think, um, you know, a lot of people, especially a lot of young people, they might see science and think, oh, you know, I, I can't imagine myself as a professor at a university or whatever but really you know the, the kind of aptitude um, that's required for science um, doesn't necessarily mean you have to be you know getting high distinctions of things I mean Fenner Frank Fenner who this lecture is is named after you know you you'd be hard-pressed to find a more eminent scientist in Australia or globally he was you know an absolute legend um, he he didn't get the grades he needed to get a university scholarship so, you know, but he pressed on and there's something in his character that did that. Um, yeah, so I guess, you know, the how you go at school is certainly a reflection of, you know, what you're good at, what you're passionate about, but it's also a reflection of how you're taught and, and the opportunities you've got. And I wonder whether that uh, aspect of Frank Fenner falling a little short as a child was one of the reasons why he was always so generous to, uh, to, to younger scholars in his later, later period. Mm. You know, people talk about him as, as just always having the time for, uh, for people who wanted to come up and chat rather than being aloof and removed as some people become when they've got the accolades and, and awards. Yeah, I think, you know, I've been blessed with some excellent mentors and excellent leaders in the work I've done. And it, yeah, it makes a huge difference. But I mean, something in kind of researching the lecture that stood out to me was um, you know, the, the way that kind of um, nurturing is passed down and, and there's a lovely story that Fenner tells when he's on a, a fellowship um, over in the US and this was something that all kind of, you know, eminent scientists did early in their career but it was really disrupted by the war so um, he had to play kind of catch up um, but he describes a... Um, you know this kind of common tea room filled with you know just the, the kind of legends of um you know microbiology in the u.s at the time and how uh the person who was mentoring him and supervising him got you know took him around and make sure he talked to all these people so i think um you, you know people often look at science and think oh it's a uh, you know it's all hard and fast and objective and about data and, and I mean and all those things are true but it's also you know there's a really intricate human story there and there's you know relationships and all kinds of things in the background that um that make it tick. So you went on to study a Bachelor of Science uh, what aspect of science did you focus on? Um, this is an interesting bit of my my academic history because I was a bit lost. I'll, I'll be honest. Um, I I left high school thinking, oh yeah, I want to be a chemist. Um, and there were formative experiences in my childhood that that kind of led me that way. And when I got there, I was like, wow, this is fascinating. Um, but but 
you know, and I enjoyed the stuff in the lab, but uh, I, I guess um, I kind of gravitated to where science and society are overlapping. And this was um, before science communication was a discipline, before there were any journals, um, before the, the Centre for the Public Awareness of Science was established at the Australian National University. But I found myself gravitating towards, um, you know, the kind of philosophy of science and uh, what they used to call, you know, science and society or still call science and society. So I was always interested in where, you know, science and, you know, basically the rest of the world uh, are overlapping. And, and I guess I've never left that space. Did you ever get into bench research or you decided fairly early that that path wasn't for you? Yeah, but yeah pretty early. I, I found um, through my my undergraduate, I, I was kind of, oh, I want to do this. And then I, I, found, um, I found genetics, you know, amazing, just fascinating um, uh, and, and kind of went down that path and that took me more into that, you know, the kind of ethics and philosophy behind it. Um, but no, I never... I guess um, I wasn't the most diligent bench scientist, um, maybe a bit uh, unconventional. <laughs> I don't know how you'd want to put it. But, yeah, it just it just wasn't for me. And um, I was very fortunate uh, in the the end of third year, and this is, I think, another, another story about, you know, the importance of serendipity in science and, um, you know, and that, that it – rarely goes to plan was that at the the end of third year I was looking for a job you know had my big hex debt looked through all the jobs you know this is back back in the day you'd look through the newspaper for jobs um and kind of got right to the end everything oh you have to have this much experience you need this degree I was, oh this is terrible all I've got is a big whopping hex debt um and you know got right to the very end the real small print ads and you know I was a bit depressed by this point and then the next column was the scholarships ads and um yeah so that kind of took me into working with the the science circus with with Questcon and ANU and yeah and kind of a ride I've never got off. What is the science circus? Um the science circus is uh it's a public engagement program um run by uh Questcon and the ANU um with various industry partners and um it's it's a program I'm still involved in now, but essentially, I mean, I'm, I run the academic side of it now at the ANU. But essentially, it's a at the moment when I did it, it was a graduate diploma degree in science communication. We kind of learn the nuts and bolts of science communication, and then go off with a truck with Questacon and ANU and go out and try those things out in the community. So that that program's been going, I think, for about thirty five years now. Um, you know, various different models and things. It's now a master's program. Um, if anyone listening does want to do it next year you know where to find me just chuck in a cheeky plug i hope you don't mind absolutely <laughs> um, yeah yeah but it's um you know a lot of the work we do uh the center for the public awareness of science we really uh, you know there's, there's lots of theory and there's all the things that academia does but but if you're in a discipline of public engagement and communication those aspects have to happen as well so it's, it's very applied and and it's you know really embedded in the community and that the science circus is one way we do that are you mostly going to schools? Yeah, the, so the, the students that we had this year, obviously um, not, not a typical year. I, I don't think anyone's yes. had a typical Let, year. Let's put 2020 aside. Uh, in a normal year, would you normally be going to schools or do you do some sort of uh, 
public public events of the Lots. kind you're doing today? Yeah, so so um, primarily going into schools, and and a lot of my science communication work has been in schools with young people and teachers, um, but also running you know exhibitions and and shows for the public, and usually in family groups. So yeah, yeah, it's certainly a good primer for for what we're going to do this afternoon with the Fenelec Shop. So what makes a good science show? Um, for me, I mean, there's a lot of things, and. Um, so I, I did my, my doctoral research in this area. I'd been um, performing science shows for a decade or so and, and I had a pretty good intuitive um, lived experience at what worked. Um, didn't always know why it worked. You know, had my own kind of um, little theories. And, um, yeah, so, so the PhD was a way to consolidate that and, and try the ideas out. But, I mean, for me, I think... Um, uh, you know the, the the show is primarily about the audience and and how they're experiencing it. So really critical things for me, um, uh, you know the emotional qualities of of you know the the demonstrations. You know they they can be you know terribly exciting or beautiful uh, or literally awesome. And so those emotional responses and how you craft them, um, that's I think a, a really key thing. Um, uh, interactivity. Uh, sadly, we'll have a bit less interactivity this year, but a lot of sanitizer. Don't worry. Um, and uh, so, yeah, interactivity, uh, things like humour, um, the enthusiasm of the presenter, a really, really critical thing for for how you make that that bond between audience and presenter, and and you know the demonstrations themselves. They're really. Um, they're, it's it's not a textbook. It's not a PowerPoint presentation. This is real phenomena. You know, really, it's you know, it's real science doing what it does, and there's something for me, and and also the people I've performed to, and 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 shared these kind of techniques with, that there's you know, seeing science do its thing is is quite a thing to behold when it's done right. So that you know, the demonstrations I think are the heart of what makes a science show a science show and makes a lecture, you know, a lecture. So I really enjoyed your uh, your thesis, and one of the things that that struck me throughout was that the the sheer love of performing and the love of science really shines through, even in an academic text like a like a PhD, and it stands in such contrast from the normal antiseptic way in which we we do science. Uh, there's almost a, a ritual in uh, in science uh, that you uh, aren't bought into one finding or the other. You know that's part of the the, the dis dispassion of it, and and the notion that you're not going to be sad regardless of how the experiment turns out so long as you've got fidelity to the method. Uh, do you see that, that tension? I mean, is, is, there a, is this sort of a problem in the way in which uh, science, scientists do their work, that they take a bit, of, a bit too much passion out? Um, I mean, I, I think that when they write it down and when they talk about it, um, you, you know, it's important for people to be able to, to trust science, that, to, to think that science is objective, um, that, you know, that if we're bathing health decisions on data, that that, that data is, as, you know, as close to the truth as possible. Um, so, so I think science talks uh, a lot about how objective it is and depending on what discipline you're in, um, we're a discipline that... Uh, I guess takes cues from you know uh, the social sciences, from psychology. So I think we're we're maybe a bit more um, open-minded, or, or dare I say, honest. That um, the you know science is a human pursuit, and so it's inherently you know caught up in emotion, and and I think um you know you, you'll see these you see trends in lots of disciplines where people kind of 
you know, no, we're so objective, we're so objective. No, nothing could cloud my, you know, perfect judgment of the truth. But um, I, I think science is getting a bit more honest with itself that um, it is a human thing and it will be subject to the human condition. And I mean, and in a lot of disciplines, you know, you're seeing people kind of acknowledge, um, you know, the positionality they bring, the, essentially the baggage that we're all carrying and, and we apply to whatever pursuit we do, whether it's science or something else. Um, but, but kind of having an awareness or that honesty that, you know, you, we can do our darndest to be objective, but you're still human. Um, I, I think that's a, a position science is... Or, some bits of science are moving towards and and I think it's helpful because you, you see you see the pursuit in, in the true context. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it's definitely a tricky one. You, uh, you talk about uh, scientists who've been uh, great innovators but have also admired the, uh, the public demonstrations and you, you've spoken about uh, Faraday's role. What, what makes Faraday special? Um, look, Faraday and, and look, the... the uh, plenty before uh, before him, um, but Faraday was the, uh, I guess the, he kind of did it all. I mean, he was a very eminent um, scientist at a time when there was lots to discover. And, and you know, I mean, he, he discovered things like electromagnetism, which we're using right now with these microphones. Um, you know, they're the first people to apply these kind of things that's the basis of, you know, every electric motor, he discovered elements. So look, he was, he was a, he was a very accomplished scientist, but he he really thought it was important to to share that, and and not just with his peers. I mean, I think um, science can be quite an insular place. Uh, you know the, you know, I mean the scientific publishing is a great example of how we want to talk to each other and maybe not um, as open to the rest of the world. But Faraday saw it very differently, and um, through his work at the the Royal Institution, he'd do these these kind of public lectures. It actually became um, quite fashionable, you know, as kind of a high society thing, um, where you know the the most eminent from society would would come along and listen to the scientists much the way that we you know worship other kinds of celebrities today but back then that you know the scientists were the rock stars and um and faraday would take his work out to the public and and i think something that that i really respect about what he did it wasn't just about influencing you know the aristocracy and the bigwigs um he you know he wanted to influence young people and he brought young people into the royal institution and did things like the christmas lectures which uh, which are still going today and have been you know an inspiration for for lots of other public engagement. So the other thing he, he, he told me, and I'll apply today, was, um, and this, this is a quote from my, or that, that was drawn to my attention uh, by my PhD supervisor, Sue Stockermeyer, previous director of the centre. And um, it, it, Faraday tells a story where he, he's been invited to do a fancy lecture. So not unlike the, the situation I find myself in. And, um, and you know, it's quite, uh, you know, highbrow. So he decides not to do any live demonstrations. And and in the, the historical accounts, you know, he just finds it a, a very flawed way of communicating. And, you know, he says to his his, his wife, you know, I'll, I'll never do a lecture without demonstrations. And so that, that's something that, that I, I've taken on board, um, certainly with my practice. And, and what I find is that, you know, of course, you're working with, yeah, young kids and families. Yeah, yeah, we want to see a demonstration. We want more action, more action, more action. But um, when they're used in more professional contexts, um, you know, they, they work really well as well. So I think, um, you know, sometimes science needs to bring more of the lab out 
into the way it communicates and and you know pictures words on a slide are great but but seeing real phenomena is a, a thing you don't forget and there's also the uh, public demonstration in order to make quite a specific point. So there's the, the lovely story of Frank Fenner uh, when myxomatosis uh, had uh, it was been invented and people were concerned it might jump its way to humans, publicly injecting himself with enough myxomatosis to kill a thousand rabbits, yeah. uh, after which his colleagues apparently dubbed him Bunny. Uh, <laughs> it, it's a wonderful story. Um, so, so at the time, the uh, CSI right, were doing the field trials for the rabbits and um, and it kind of got out and it got into the rabbit population and, and it went wild. We'll, we'll talk about this this afternoon and um, rabbits are a massive, massive problem, a feral animal problem at the time. Uh, but at the same time, there was some encephalitis in Victoria and, you, you know, people, this rabbit virus out there, people getting sick, you know, people are joining these dots. Um, it's it's not unlike you know some of the conspiracy and misinformation that that we've seen this year. But you know Fenner, to his credit, yeah, he just you know they injected themselves with these massive quantities of this rabbit virus, and you know I think the quote is you know and the public was reassured. You know, so it's it's yeah I think it's a wonderful yeah wonderful story of how um yeah I mean it's a bit too uh, I like my science hands on, but um I I won't be injecting any of it today <laughs> there will be some some quite dramatic hands-on science though but it can also lead to a backlash too so i'm thinking of uh, barry marshall uh, g giving himself uh, stomach ulcers by taking on h pylori which uh, uh, was a story that the public latched onto but led to some of his colleagues thinking of himself as, as a bit of a bit of a crazy man for uh, for do doing this and uh, uh, stymieing his progress in the academy while it raised his status in the community yeah yeah look i i think um i mean one of our big jobs with, with the work we do is uh, you know trying to bring those two spheres together so I think um, uh, the, the kind of engagement that is very effective for the public you know is often maybe frowned upon in academia I mean we've had some really interesting research out of our centre about the you know the the um, I guess you know the culture within academia that, that doesn't always value um, communication to the public and uh, and whether that's a, a a thing of individual researchers or an institutional thing or a broader, I'd argue, cultural problem um, for science. So I, I think it is a tricky one. You know, I the, the kind of work I do, a lot of people look at you and go, oh, you know, you're just the, the guy that goes and blows things up. You know, it's all just fun and games. Um, but yeah, I mean, as, as, as your question implies, we can use these things for really serious stuff. And, you know, um, through my shows, which I think, particularly science shows, you know, they're, oh, they're for the kids. Um, I've used them effectively as an HIV intervention in South in South Africa or for, for climate change, you know. So uh, these kind of tools that are effective um, for engaging the public, they're also, you know, effective for, you know, for dealing with issues of science that are hugely relevant to the public, you know, whether it be health or the environment, things like that. So let's uh, go to those two themes. Uh, tell me about how you got involved working in Africa. Um, this is, uh, I think it's been a real highlight of my career and really um, kind of taking it to the global stage. You realise, you know, a lot of things about um, equity and how lucky you are and that, that we really are a lucky country. Um, but I think back in 2003, um, um, 
uh, Mike Gore, who founded Questacon, and, and Sue Stockemeyer were trying to take a version of the Science Circus across to Africa. And, um, and I thought I'd, I'd just finished my graduate diploma and I thought that sounds like a fabulous idea. Um, tried to teach myself a bit of Zulu to, um, to kind of get a foot in the door and it worked. And yeah, so, so I've uh, been working in Africa since then, um, probably gone over dozens of times uh, working with various different partners and, and moving from a model where we were more taking our science over and you know, communicating it to a true kind of um, capacity building and development program. So now we've got a great network uh, across Southern and East Africa um, who, you know, we've been able to learn a lot from and they've been able to learn um, from us and, you know, really getting a bit of a movement for the, this kind of uh, way, particularly for young people to engage with science uh, in Africa where it was really absent. I mean, a lot of groups are doing some great stuff over there, but also a massive population very resource poor, um, you, you know, so there's, a, I guess, a lot, a lot of work to do. And also problems with denialism, right? I mean, you didn't uh, didn't always have African leaders acknowledging that HIV cause, causes AIDS, and so presumably you're, this, the science uh, events that you're doing are, are critical there in raising public understanding. Yeah, absolutely, and I mean, with uh, with the work we did with um, with HIV, yeah, there's certainly you know there, there's a lot of um, you know misinformation, whether it be medical or um, you know kind of cultural um, witchcrafty type things, you know. So so you, you you're dealing with all those things. Um, I mean, I. I don't think that's a situation unique to, to Africa. I mean, you, you look at COVID, you, you look at some of the, uh, you know, just, um, you know, crazy conspiracy theories that are going around and, you know, science has got, um, and the communication has got a, a big job to do, a really difficult job to do. How, how did you go about doing that in, in Africa? I mean, you're coming in as an outsider. Uh, what, uh, what gives you uh, hope that you're able to shape views where what you're saying might be different to what uh, elders in the community or even national leaders are saying? I think we got there at a time that, that was good. Um, the, the story of HIV in South Africa, you know, it's really complex. And as you said, um, there was a time when national leaders were denying it. Um, we got there a bit later. I, I think the key to it was I'm, I'm the last person a young South African needs to hear from about, you know, safe sex or condom use or whatever. So um, like the programs, you know, we run elsewhere in Africa and now in the Pacific, very much based on a partnership model. Um, finding you know the, the right local people to deliver those messages, um, the people who could deliver them you know in in the right language with cultural nuance uh, to be good role models for the young people. So yeah, so, so a lot of training around that. And I think the the other thing and was uh, I think particularly in health communication, uh, you, you know it's easy to go in with the the doom and gloom and that kind of fear message and, and I mean that's, what we did in Australia with, I mean, some people remember the bowling alley ads uh, around HIV, which were very confronting, but um, often don't work particularly for young people. So, so we tried to um, make it fun without trivialising it. Uh, we we tried to make it a, a you know kind of journey of discovery where we actually um we kind of went through a role play where everyone got shrunk down and kind of you know injected 
in this little submarine and we went on a journey um, looking for the HIV, trying to work out how it got there and then using that as a context to talk about um, talk about behaviour change. Mm. So, mm. yeah, and, and again, you know, those those emotional qualities and, sorry, one I didn't mention before, the, the idea of relevance or how you contact uh, is, you know, connecting with individuals. Um, you know, that, that was a really critical thing to making it work. But that, I mean, it, and it did work. You know, we, we had stories, um, the one that sticks in my head, young Zulu boy, and he came back to do a follow-up interview. This is a month later. Um, and he told us that as a direct result of his experience at the Science Centre and the, the science show that day, that, that he decided to go back to just having one partner um, uh, polygamy is a, is a very common thing in, in South Africa and in Zulu culture, um, but also, you know, a big, a big risk factor for a sexually transmitted disease. So, you know, I thought, wow, you, you know, I mean, that's just, that's one anecdote, but it really, you know, hit home to me that these kind of ways of communicating science that are often pushed off to the side as, you know, something a bit trivial or just for fun, they really do have application in some very difficult problems. And uh, climate change must be an issue where increasingly now your uh, your most uh, wonkish colleagues are thinking, no, actually, we do have a problem here uh, with the yeah, significant uh, uh, dispersion between uh, between what many members of the public think and what the majority of scientists think, to some extent in Australia, even more so in the United States. Uh, how do you go about shaping views on climate change? Oh, just... Just an easy question. Um, look, this this is a trigger, and I mean, there's a big uh, body of scholarship out there trying to work out, you know, how should we frame messages, who's best to deliver messages, what what sort of message, all this kind of thing, because it, it really is a you know it's a huge problem. Um, the the way I approach it, um, in the the little bit I think I can contribute to well is, um, you know, actually really just showing people the, you know, the issue that that I think a lot of people don't you know i mean carbon dioxide doesn't lend itself to you know it's, it's invisible we can't see it we can't smell it it's not like looking at a polluted river but but you know it's having a real global effect so trying to bring those kind of things trying to make them visible so i'll, I'll talk about this this afternoon you know we'll, we'll create just a small modest amount of emissions um using the kind of fuels that that we're um powering not the act i must say we're, we're going to use some of the act's fully renewable energy um to, to produce uh you know, some hydrogen gas, but, but to actually tell those stories through, you know, through live demonstrations and get people to see, you know, the real phenomena. Um, I find that, uh, you know, I guess for, for the kind of skill set I can bring to, to what is a very difficult um, problem that requires lots of different approaches, but, but showing people uh, that the technology is there, um, you know, things like a hydrogen economy is not just a PowerPoint slide. It's something that we'll do this afternoon you know, using a lunchbox and stuff you can buy, you know, from the hardware store. So this technology is not out of reach. And I think, um, or, or what I hope, we need a lot more research on this, is that, you know, when people can kind of see that there is, you know, there are solutions to these problems, they're not out of the reach. Um, for the most part, they're not technical problems either, that, that people can start to realise that, you know, there's... You know, there's a political dimension to this, there's a social dimension to this, there's a kind of human inertia dimension. But, but you know, we've, we've got to get moving. This is a problem that the longer we leave it, the the worse it's going to get and we're going to have to fix it sometime. So so I think, um, 
bringing that to life in a way that's you know um, authentic it's not just you know a newspaper story or whatever and um, and and painting is a positive message so I, re I really think you know if um, if I'd driven here an electric ute I'd be a lot happier today you know but but we don't see an electric ute on the market in Australia yet. so you know there's really lots of dimensions and I'm sure you'd be aware of the policy dimension too yeah it's interesting I remember us uh, being told when uh, under the Gillard government we were doing a lot of communication around the need to act on climate change uh, that uh, statistically if you came across somebody who was uh, in their 50s, 60s, 70s, and they were a bloke who had passionate views that climate change was a hoax, that the chances that a, a politician would be able to talk them around were, were very, very low, uh, which was sort of a bit dispiriting for somebody who's uh, uh, passionate about ideas and, and wants, to, want, wants to communicate them as, uh, as, as, I, as I do. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I hope that we can be optimistic in the ability of, of everyone to... Uh, to confront some of their views and uh, and, and ch change their minds as the evidence shifts. And, and I think that that's a really important point. That it, it's about um, creating a place where people can make up their own minds. I mean, something science communication and lots of other disciplines have realised pretty well is that just giving people, you know, the knowledge or the information, um, just, you know, filling a deficit, that doesn't necessarily change how we think, mm. doesn't change, I mean with um, health communication, you know, like you can know things are bad for you and keep doing them. Um, you know, so the, just communicating the information isn't enough. It's, it's kind of the nuance within that. Um, but, you know, I think, I think we're getting, yeah, I, I hope we're getting better at having a, a conversation about it. You, you see it dip up and down in, in the kind of public debate. But, um, you know, I, th I think the, the science is very clear. We, we need to act on it now, but how to how to get that happening um, globally is, yeah, it's a, a much trickier proposition. But I was thinking as I was reading your thesis about a, a lovely book called Everybody Lies, which is a, a big data analysis which uh, uh, uses internet searches uh, as, as one of, the, one of the, the key data sources. And the author has a lovely comparison between two speeches that Obama gave in order to reduce Islamophobia. Uh, one speech was talking about common Amer American values and the need to, to be inclusive towards Muslims. Uh, and when you look at, looked at internet searches during the time Obama was giving the speeches, Islamophobia went up, not down. Uh, and then a fortnight later, he gives another speech in which he tries to pique Americans' curiosity by saying, uh, did you know that the founding fathers had copies of the Koran? Did you know that uh, uh, many of the top athletes are, uh, are Muslim? Uh, and there you saw Islamophobia drop uh, mm -hmm. and uh, as, as, as curiosity had been spiked. So maybe that's the answer with an issue like climate change, where you want to, to spark people's curiosity to explore rather than to be a little bit too preachy. Yeah, no, that's exactly right, um, and I've I've had experience of that. But yeah, I think you know people, uh, you know, telling people what they should think. I mean, I've got a four-year-old; it just doesn't work. Um, but, but, but you know, we, I don't think we lose that. But I mean, creating the space to have a conversation, and um, you know, and I think you know, and, and listening to people who who disagree with you, or listening to people who you think are you know irrational, in doing some air quotes here. Um, you know, creating that space for a conversation. And I think um, where science communication has moved through uh, as a discipline in the last 20 or 30 years is going from, all right, um, 
you know, so-and-so is a climate denier. Here's an IPCC report. Read it all. Come back with a, you know, change mindset. And, and that just doesn't work. Um, where it's moved to is that, you know, it needs to be a two-way thing. There, there needs to be dialogue with people and um, people that both agree and disagree with you, they need to be able to, you know, um, be engaged with the research process and be able to see how science is done and feel, you know, some investment in that if, if we want them to, um, I guess, engage with, with, with the findings. As a dad, how do you think about science communication uh, to, to, to your young one? It's it's a really good question. Um, I, uh, you know, I've done a lot of work with early learners and science. Um, I've made a, yeah, I think, I think it's easy to kind of run down the path of trying to, um, I mean, it's a similar kind of thing, trying to teach too much. Um, so, so what I do with my little boy is just, um, I guess, a lot like the environment that was created for me is just just give him the tools to explore. Um, and and not worry too much about what he's finding out. More um, giving those tools to you know to investigate and be curious. And they say the the first five years the the kind of dispositions that um, you know a child takes from their environment and the the neural pathways that are you know getting really carved out over those five years. You know, for me, I don't think that trying to load that up with content is the way to do it. I try to you know, loaded up with tools. And often that just means, you know, here's some weird stuff to play with in the bath. Tell me what you find out. What sort of yeah. weird stuff? Oh, just, you know, stuff in the kitchen, just, you know, strainers. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm amazed. Um, I think I, I look at it because um, of my research background, very much the, you know, the, the kind of the emotions and things and, you know, and he'll he'll find out things that, that I didn't expect and, and he'll be really excited and he'll want to show you. So, you, you know, those those emotional qualities of discovery um, I, I think are really important. So, so yeah, I, I think I'm very much a kind of process and those kind of thinking tools and letting them form naturally um, as opposed to um, kind of what we do with formal education where we, we try to really, you know, carve out the content and test against that. I, I often don't think, you know, I think it's got a place, but I don't, I don't think it's the whole story of um, kind of holistic education. Yes, Alison Gopnik's got a lovely line where she said we should uh, not think of children as being partly formed adults, but we should think of children as being uh, uh, humanities research and development division, where adults are the production and marketing division. <laughs> no, it's it's so true. I think, I think we... Um, uh, not literally, but, but I think we metaphorically beat a lot of the good stuff out of, out of um, you know how people think and yeah and and I think a lot of the things that I do at university is um, trying to get people to you know to do their critical thinking and do their exploration and you know and be creative. They're really really hard things to teach, um, but they're things that uh, every little person kind of has really naturally. So I think we've got a lot to learn about how to nurture that through formal education. What about big people who want to stay engaged with science? Uh, for somebody who hasn't studied science, what do you recommend as a couple of uh, a couple of resources? Should people be subscribing to the New Scientist? Do you have a favourite uh, uh, pod podcast or two, or a website website um, that uh, people can check into to to just keep up to date with what's going on in science? I think that you, you know there's lots of good um, you know kind of grown up 
um, science content out there. Lots of you know good magazines and uh, podcasts and things. I'm not sure I'd, I'd recommend any in particular. Go out and find the ones that, that work for you. Um, but I'd say particularly for you know the 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 parents or, or even just the big kids, the the young at heart, um, is you know doing it practically. You know, getting out in the shed um, and building stuff. I think it's a it's a culture. Certainly, when I tour in regional areas, you know, the um, kids that grow up on the farms, you can pick them a mile away because they're they're doing that all the time. They're practical problem solvers. Um, and I mean, same same in Africa. You know, the kids they have to build their own toys, so they're great engineers. They're great designers. Um, but but I think some of that is being lost. So I guess I'd, I'd encourage people to to get out there and physically engage with science themselves, particularly if you've got kids. It's a lot of fun. Um, but I mean, I I build these hovercrafts out of leaf blowers, and they're they're great fun. And the kids love riding it. But it's the the mums and dads coming up at the end, you know, having a bit of a look. You know, I've got a leaf blower at home. I, I think I could build one of those. So, um, so so a regular leaf blower can be turned into a machine that will actually lift a human off the ground. Oh yeah, well far enough off the ground that they'll they'll glide. Yeah, we're not talking. You know, you, you wouldn't be taking it across like Burley Griffin or anything. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I can I can bring one in and you can you can have a have a go. That's fantastic. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, if anyone listening to the podcast is interested, um, yeah, s- send me an email and I'll send you the instructions to make one. But I think um, it, you know, you can listen to podcasts, you can watch stuff on YouTube, but there, there's nothing quite like doing science yourself. Um, and 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 it is very accessible. I mean, most of the things I'll use in the show today, uh, you know, they're, they're everyday items. And I wouldn't recommend you try everything I'm going to do this afternoon. Um, but you know, there's lots of science that we can physically engage with, and I think it's a, it's a great way to explore it. Graham, what advice would you give to your teenage self? Um, probably worry less. Yeah. Yeah. Did you worry much? I, I always thought that I'd have a, as a teenager, I thought I'd have a fixed plan and I'd have boxes to tick and I'd have this, you know, path to whatever it was. And, um, yeah, I just don't think life's like that. And I think um, you stop worrying and you, you're more optimistic. You you see opportunities better. You, you have more fun doing it. Um, you know, when I kind of gave up having a plan and let, life kind of washed me around and and kind of observed closely where I was being washed, I, I think it, it worked a lot better. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? Oh, that I think when I was young, I thought I'd, I'd have one job and one career. Um, that that's I, I think I've had a theme, but but that's certainly not true. And, and I think the thing that a lot of young people think is that I'm, I'm going to be some this very narrow thing. And that, that's all right. That's all right if that's how you want to do it. But um you know, often life isn't like that, and I think being being open to the adventure is is a uh, yeah, it's a lot more exciting. When are you most happy? Oh, I mean, lots of contexts. Um, yeah, family, obviously. Um, spending time with family. I I do love performing. Um, yeah, there's a lot of uh, when you're doing the shows, yeah, you really you know kind of um, when you've been doing something for long enough, you can really kind of get not lost but but really you know in the moment and that's lovely um love my electric skateboard that makes me very happy doing doing practical science with uh, with my son things like that that kind of bring it all together yeah yeah but you know there, there's lots to be happy about do you have any guilty pleasures got the recorder still on <laughs> <laughs> Certainly does. Uh, i think so you know no one's perfect so yeah 
And finally... I do like... I've got a real soft spot for blue cheese and, and that's... You know, that's catching up with me now. My metabolism, my boyhood metabolism, has lost. Can you uh, can can you make an excuse in terms of the science behind blue cheese? I mean, it is interesting to be uh, to be eating this thing, which is uh, which, which which has a fungus inside it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, look, I'm sure I can make arguments that it's going to improve my microbiome or something like that. But to be honest, it's just really tasty. Yeah, I think. Um, yeah, you gotta gotta live a little um, as long as everything else is working out. And finally, what person or what experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Look, certainly travel. Uh, travel has really opened my eyes to the way, you know, I think like when you're a kid, you're like, you know, you hear people, oh, it's the lucky country and things. Yeah, yeah. Um, but... Yeah, tr travel really opens your eyes to the kind of day-to-day -day struggles that, that we never see in our community. Um, yeah, and, and I think from that, you know, a lot of, I guess, ideas that shape my work, uh, you know, around um, equity and global development and things like that, I think, you know, they flow out of, um, you know, having having a lived experience of you know, how good we got it, but, but also how, you know, the, the struggle, like some of the people we work with in Africa, um, you know, they'll, they'll work, walk for hours carrying a box of equipment so they can go and do a show in a rural village in somewhere in Zambia. And, you know, I'm packing my car and things. So you really, that, um, that awareness of, of how good you got it um, and, and, and working with people in those contexts has definitely been something that's made me... Yeah, see the world in a different way. Yes, I don't think I know anyone who's had a substantive period of working in Africa who hasn't come back quite changed in how they look mm. at the world and, and their own place in it. Yeah, and they're wonderful. I've learnt so much from, you know, from people over there. Um, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I think there any... Yeah, I think, I think travel, and I'll look forward to when I can travel again, but, you know, it really is an eye-opener. And, and I think with that, you know, the, seeing different cultures, um, the, the different way that, you know, people around the world value different things um, is, yeah, it's a real eye-opener. It gets you to question, yeah, question what's important to you as well. There's something rich in that. Graham Walker, scientist, science communicator and 2020 Fenner lecturer, thanks so much for taking the time to appear on the Good Life podcast today. <laughs> Cheers. And thank you for, for those questions at the end. I'm all philosophical. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation. If you enjoyed this discussion, I reckon you'll love past interviews with some of our previous Fenner lecturers. Carl Kruznicki, Eddie Wu, and Michelle Simmons. On the theme of living well, Nick Terrell and I have a new book out titled Reconnected, a community builder's handbook. We appreciate getting feedback on the podcast, so do leave us a rating or tell a friend about the show. Next week, we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.